Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the April edition of the EVJ Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today I'm joined by Mary Robinson discussing inflammatory mediators caused by shockwave therapy and Rebecca Ballone discussing catastrophic breakdown in racehorses. Mary Robinson is Assistant Professor of Veterinary Pharmacology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's here to talk about the recent paper in EVJ titled Inflammatory Mediators are Potential Biomarkers for Extracorporeal Shockwave Therapy in Horses. Mary, thank you very much for joining us to talk on the EVJ podcast for our April edition. Um, we're talking about a paper you've recently written uh, about extracorporeal shockwave therapy in horses. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what shockwave therapy is meant to promote when applying it and what kind of musculoskeletal conditions it's currently used for? Sure. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to discuss this topic. The shockwave therapy is generally used to try and promote healing, um, usually of tendon injuries or bone injuries in horses. And presumably this is occurring by increasing blood flow to these tissues. Uh, these tissues generally you know, do not have as, as uh, good blood supply. Um, and so by increasing blood flow to the tissue, it is thought to be able to accelerate the healing of these tissues. Uh, the downside of shockwave therapy is that it also has a very strong analgesic effect. Um, and that's a downside for horses in competition because that means that they will uh, potentially no longer be able to feel their injury. Uh, and that is why it is not permitted during competition um, or within a short period of time prior to competition. So in, in most racing jurisdictions, shockwave therapy is banned for at least 10 days prior to competition. Okay, and this paper explores um, using inflammatory mediators as potential biomarkers for shockwave use. Um, how has shockwave been shown to affect inflammatory markers in previous studies? So all of the previous studies that we have are in other species, and primarily um, in humans and in pigs, the shockwave therapy has been uh, administered for lithotripsy to try and break down kidney stones. And so we've been able to look at some of the data from those studies to see that shockwave therapy can have effect on inflammatory markers in the local tissue of the kidney as well as in the urine. Um, there's also been a, a studies in rats looking at the effect of shockwave on wound healing. And in those studies, uh, shockwave therapy altered some of these inflammatory markers within the, the skin tissue itself. And so uh, based on those studies, we hypothesized that some of these local changes might be detectable systemically. And uh, we decided to look at uh, the blood of horses treated with shockwave therapy to see if we could see any changes in these inflammatory mediators in the blood after a single dose of shockwave therapy. Okay, could you give us a little bit more detail about your study design for us? Sure. Uh, so in this study, we treated 11 healthy horses with shockwave therapy, and this was a single dose of therapy. Um, it's a dose that we've used commonly in the clinic to treat um, acute periostitis or buck shins, and uh, they were treated uh, 
with just one single dose. Uh, we collected blood samples for a week prior to the therapy on a daily basis, as well as three weeks after the therapy. Um, and we also collected some samples around the time of administration, uh, two hours, four hours, and six hours immediately after treatment to look for very acute effects on um, pro and anti-inflammatory markers. So which inflammatory mediators or inflammatory markers were you specifically investigating? Uh, so we chose uh, 10 different inflammatory markers to measure for this study, and these were chosen primarily based on the availability of the reagents for horses and, and their markers that have been published in other species and other studies um, to have been affected by shockwave therapy in some cases. Um, and so the markers themselves were interleukin-1-beta, uh, also referred to as IL-1-beta, IL-1 receptor antagonist, IL-2 IL-4, IL-6, IL-10, IL-15, interferon gamma, soluble toll-like receptor 2, and tumor necrosis factor alpha. So you were looking at a mixture of pro and anti-inflammatory markers, is that correct? That's correct, yes. And some of these could also have qualities of both pro and anti-inflammatory characteristics uh, depending on the study. Um, IL-6 is a really good example of that one where in some studies it seems to be upregulated and in other studies it seems to be downregulated uh, and can serve both roles. Okay. So which plasma concentrations of inflammatory mediators did you find were significantly altered by a single focused dose of shockwave therapy? Uh, so there were five of the 10 cytokines that we investigated that had statistically significant differences um, after a single dose of shockwave therapy. Uh, those cytokines were IL-1-beta and IL-6, uh, which were both significantly downregulated, and TNF-alpha, IL-1 receptor antagonist, and TLR2, uh, which were significantly upregulated. Okay, and what do you think this indicates? Uh, so we have changes in both pro and anti-inflammatory cytokines, and I'll briefly go through uh, some of the characteristics for these five. Um, IL-1-beta is a pro-inflammatory marker that is associated with acute and chronic pain. Uh, and the fact that it was downregulated in this study correlates really well with our knowledge that shockwave therapy has the ability to decrease pain. Uh, we don't know the mechanism for that. It may have something to do with nerve transmission, decreasing nerve transmission. Uh, but it's interesting that IL-1-beta was downregulated and, um, and has been typically associated with acute and chronic pain. Uh, TNF-alpha is also another pro-inflammatory marker, but in our study it was upregulated. Um, and it was upregulated for the entire you know, three weeks after the single dose of shockwave therapy. And we think that this upregulation is probably a reflection of the tissue damage that we know shockwave therapy causes acutely. Um, it's, it's a bit counterintuitive because we think of shockwave therapy as helping the tissue to heal. Uh, but if you look at the uh, specifically tendon tissue under a microscope after an application of shockwave therapy, you can see disruption to those collagen fibers. Um, and that's due to damage that the shockwaves are causing. And so that, that minor amount of damage is also increasing the blood supply of the tissue, which might be why it speeds up the long-term recovery. But in the short term, it does cause tissue damage. And so the upregulation of TNF-alpha may be a reflection of that. 
Um, and this also underscores why it's so important to rest the horse after a dose of shockwave therapy and to make sure you give sufficient time for the, the tissues to heal. Um, and then an IL-1 receptor antagonist is a, an anti-inflammatory protein um, that was also upregulated in this study. So it's it's interesting to note that we've got both pro and anti-inflammatory proteins that have been upregulated. And this is most likely because uh, the body has this balance that it's trying to maintain between these pro and anti-inflammatory factors uh, to enable appropriate healing to occur when an injury occurs. Um, and typically, if this balance is not maintained is when we start to see, um, we can see problems. Um, so, the, so the fact that we have both pro and anti-inflammatory proteins upregulated, I think, just reflects this balance that the body is constantly trying to maintain. Um, and then IL-6 and TL TRL-2 um, are two of the others that were affected. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, IL-6 can be either pro or anti-inflammatory, and we really don't have a good understanding of what that might mean in this case. And TRL-2, it just has not been sufficiently studied. It's one of the newer ones that we've obtained reagents for, and, and it's not been studied in other species either, to our knowledge. Um, so it's so there's there's lots of interesting information that we've gained from this as far as the basic um, patho pathology and physiology go regarding the effects of shockwave therapy, but we're still trying to figure out what this all means in the big picture. Why do you think these markers were altered and does it fit with the previous literature? So I think these markers were altered because they represent a mix of pro and anti-inflammatory factors. And any time that there's uh, an acute injury or, or to the tissue, you're going to have alterations in these factors. Uh, we just we weren't sure whether our methodology would be sensitive enough to detect them systemically in a blood sample. Um, but in previous studies that looked at local effects in the tissues of humans, pigs, and rats, um, they have reported changes in some of these markers. Uh, but they're, they've been very uh, confusing because in some studies they've been upregulated and in other studies they've been downregulated. Um, and so the study design, I think, is really important uh, to know which, how the study was performed and what markers were evaluated in order to be able to try and understand these things. Um, so, for example, in humans and pigs, when they treated the kidneys uh, with shockwave therapy for lithotripsy, they were able to see that in uh, humans they did not detect any systemic changes or in any changes in the kidney or the urine. Uh, but in pigs, they were able to detect changes within the urine. Uh, so I think the study design is, is really important for understanding the, the results of these. The population of horses you used were not in exercise or racing. Do you think this can affect the levels of inflammatory mediators produced? Absolutely. Uh, we know that the exercise has uh, effects on these inflammatory markers. Um, and the horses used in this study were all healthy, sedentary research horses, uh, which we, we were using it to provide as proof of concept that we would be able to detect changes in systemic inflammatory markers after a single dose of shockwave therapy. Um, however, there really is a lot of work that still needs to be completed before we can extrapolate these findings to the racehorse population. Uh, so we need to investigate what the impact, the level of fitness will have on these specific markers. And also, uh, we need to investigate what the injury itself will have, the impact that injury itself may have on these uh, markers. And uh, and 
then combine you know horses that have been injured and received shockwave therapy and look to see what the effects of uh, shockwave therapy are on these markers in those animals. So there's there's quite a lot of future studies that we're working on that need to be completed uh, before we can have a really clear picture as to how we can use these markers from a regulatory perspective. Uh, and I think that's obviously that's what our intention is, is to be able to come up with some tests um, to be able to detect if a horse has inappropriately received shockwave therapy within um, a short period of time prior to competition. And uh, we still have a lot of work to do before we get to that point. Okay, well, it sounds very interesting and sounds like there's a, a, bit, a bit more work to do. Um, but thank you very much for coming on the podcast and telling us about your study. Absolutely. I was glad to do it. Rebecca Ballone is Director of the Veterinary Genetics Laboratory and Adjunct Professor in the Department of Population Health and Reproduction at the University of California, Davis. She's here to discuss the recent paper titled Warm Blood Fragile Foal Syndrome Type 1 Mutation, Blood 1, is not associated with catastrophic breakdown and has a low allele frequency in the thoroughbred breed. Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us um, for our April EVJ podcast. We know that racehorses can suffer catastrophic fractures and that they often carry a fatal prognosis. Uh, research into factors of catastrophic injury is ongoing <clears throat> and currently at the moment a highly discussed topic. So what's your current thought on um, what increases a horse's susceptibility to catastrophic fracture uh, in racing? So, yes, there's been many epidemiological studies that have investigated potential risk factors for catastrophic fracture with over um, close to 300 different factors across multiple studies being investigated. And um, the current thought is that, uh, that it is cumulative damage of the articular cartilage and subchondral bone that results from repetitive strain of high-speed exercise leads to impaired remodeling, and it's that this impaired remodeling is a key factor in making horses susceptible to fracture. And there's also evidence to support a genetic component to the risk for fracture. So if we link these two lines of evidence together, it's hypothesized that genetics plays a role in the remodeling process. In other words, it's hypothesized that some horses are more susceptible to fracture because they have inherited variants that make their repair process slower or less efficient compared to other horses. Okay, so a genome-wide association study uh, was previously carried out to investigate the genetic component of fracture risk uh, in the thoroughbred. What was identified from this study? So in 2014, Blott and colleagues um, from England investigated a population of thoroughbred racehorses racing at UK racecourses to try and identify what chromosomal uh, regions were associated with fracture risk. And what they did was they compared the DNA of 269 horses that sustained catastrophic fracture to a control group of 253 horses that raced during the same time period and had no history of fracture. And what they did was they performed a study called a genome-wide association study. And one way to think about that kind of study is that you're looking at thousands of places in the DNA and trying to identify variants that have a higher frequency in the cases when you compare them to the controls. So by definition, these are the regions that we call associated. 
So in their study, they identified several regions of association with fracture risk, and the most significant region was an association on chromosome 18. Um, and close to that region, there are several um, bone developmental and collagen genes. Um, so what, what their study really did was provided evidence to support that there is a genetic basis for fracture risk and that it's likely not simply inherited, meaning a single gene isn't the cause. A single gene and a single mutation won't explain all the inherited risk for fracture, and that there are likely several different genetic risk factors, each contributing to a fraction of the inherited component of this risk. However, their study did not identify any causal risk variants or any causal changes in the DNA. Um, instead, the study provided a basis for which future studies can investigate asso these associated regions to identify causal variants. So to date, it's not possible to test uh, for or breed away from genetic variants causing fracture risk. Therefore, um, the precise role that genetics plays in bone metabolism and susceptibility to catastrophic fracture remains to be identified. So your laboratory at UC Davis uh, identified the presence of a DNA variant that causes a connective tissue disorder in warm blood breeds was also found in the thoroughbred. Could you tell us a little bit about this disorder, uh, the gene that causes it, and what your study aimed to do? Yes, so as you mentioned, um, warm blood fragile full syndrome type 1 is a connective tissue disorder that's been reported in warm blood horses, and it's considered to be a recessive condition, which means horses need two copies of the uh, mutated version of the gene in order to be affected. And clinically, this has been characterized as hyperextensible, abnormally thin and fragile skin that has been found to cause lesions in various locations. Um, it's also been um, shown in a, a couple of cases to um, cause incomplete closure of the abdominal wall, as well as lax and hyperextendable limb joints. Um, and to date, if we include the patent application and two peer-reviewed publications, 17 cases have been confirmed to be a result from being homozygous for a mutation in a gene called PLOD1. Um, so specifically, there's a single uh, nucleotide polymorphism, or a single change in the DNA sequence. We call these single nucleotide polymorphisms SNP for short. In the gene called PLOD1, or the full name of PLOD1 is called procollagen lysine 2 oxaglutarate 5 dioxygenase one which is why, <laughs> which is why geneticists, yeah, um, always abbreviate things to PLOD1. So this single change in this gene has been shown to cause warm blood fragile full syndrome, and this change is from a guanine to an adenine. And so since PLOD1 um, is, has been shown to be important for collagen biosynthesis, essentially its, its functional role is it's an enzyme that adds a specific chemical group called a hydroxyl group to lysine residues in collagen. And by adding that hydroxyl group, it uh, helps to uh, stabilize the connection between collagen fibrils, um, thus providing strength and support for many body tissues, including the skin. And when we were um, screening multiple horse breeds to set up commercialization for that warm blood fragile fold test here at the Veterinary Genetics Lab, we identified the presence of that PLOD1 variant in the thoroughbred breed. And because the variant was present in the thoroughbred breed, and because we know that PLOD1 is important for collagen cross-linking, there was speculation that this PLOD1 variant could be a risk factor, risk factor for catastrophic breakdown. So the objective of our study was really to estimate the frequency of the PLOD1 um, variant in the thoroughbred population and to determine 
if either the allele or the carrier frequency um, was higher in catastrophic breakdown cases compared to several different control groups. In other words, our objective really was to conduct the appropriate study to determine if this PLOD1 allele was associated with catastrophic breakdown. Okay, so what were your inclusion criteria for your cohorts and what kind of tests did you carry out? So um, in total, we genotyped 716 thoroughbred horses for this PLOD1 variant. And then we um, ca- uh, compared the frequency of the PLOD1 variant um, by a statistical test called Fisher's Exact Test, looking at both the allele frequency, so what was the percentage of that PLOD1 variant in each of the separate populations, um, and also the carrier frequency. So what was the percentage of, of individuals that were heterozygous for that variant within each of the, the cohorts? So we compared a case cohort to several different control cohorts. So the case cohort consisted of 22 catastrophic breakdown cases, of which 13 horses were injured during a race and nine were injured during training. And and all of the um, cases came from horses that were raced or trained at the same track. And one of the reasons why we um, limited it to the cases to just that one track is that all of those other um, studies that I talked about previously showed that there are likely many contributors to factor risk. So in order to minimize potentially other variables, we limited the cases to just that track. And then in terms of the control cohorts, the first control cohort were horses um, it consisted of 138 horses that raced or trained at that same track so that you're sort of comparing apples to apples, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but those controls had no record of injury. And then the second control cohort that we um, compared to is we wanted to include older horses. Um, and so we looked at a group of older horses, so horses older than seven years of age that raced during the same season um, but could could have raced on any of the U.S. racetracks, but again, had no record of injury. There were 185 horses in that group. And then um, we sought to determine if the allele frequency was higher in groups of horses that raced compared to non-racers. While there are lots of reasons horses don't race, if it was different between the two groups, it could suggest that there were, it was undergoing selection for or against in the racing group. So thus we compared um, the cases... Um, to a a group of uh, horses, uh, 92 horses between the ages of five and nine that never started in a race. And then finally, um, to determine if the case population had a significant difference in allele or carrier frequency from a random population of thoroughbred horses, we had a population of 279 um, thoroughbred horses with no regard for um, where, if they raced or their age. So quite a few cohorts with a large number of horses. Yes. So was the PLOD1 variant that causes the warm blood fragile foal syndrome type 1 found to be common in the thoroughbred population that you studied? So the PLOD1 variant was detected at a low frequency in all five of the cohorts we studied. Among all the samples tested, if we um, combine everyone together, the 716 samples, the allele frequency was estimated to be at 1.2%. And of those horses that we tested, only 17 of them were carriers for the PLOD1 variant that's been shown to cause that warm warm blood fragile foal syndrome type 1. And no horses were found to be homozygous for the variant, and um, since this is a recessive uh, mutation. 
Um, that was sort of an, an important finding. And then further, only one of the 22 horses that were um, our case horses or that died from catastrophic injury was a carrier of the Plod 1 variant. So only one horse had only one of those 22 um, case horses had one copy of that recessive allele. All of the others um, were homozygous for the normal allele. Okay. And when comparing between the cohorts, did you find any difference in carrier or allele frequency for the warm blood fragile foal syndrome allele? No. So in all of the comparisons we made, um, there was no difference in um, either the allele or the carrier frequency between um, the case and the control cohorts. And we actually did six different comparisons. So we compared cases to controls um, that raced at the same um raced or trained at the same track. And then we compared cases um, to controls, um, to older controls that raced at the same season. And we compared um, horses that raced, so all of the racing groups to ones that never raced. And then we compared the cases to those that never raced. And we compared the cases to the random population. And then we compared all of the racing horses to the random population. And none of those comparisons were we able to detect a statistical difference in allele or carrier frequency. When uh, researching into human literature, are variants in Plod 1 known to cause diseases in humans? Yes, so over 40 mutations in Plod 1 have been described in humans to cause a disorder called um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, and some of these human patients show features of joint laxity and skin fragility um, like warm blood fragile foal syndrome in horses. But others um, are characterized additionally by other symptoms, including congenital muscle hypotonia, um, congenital or early onset curvature of the spine, ocular issues that include sclera fragility and rupture of the globe. Um, and so, uh, you know, in that regard, um, you know, those human mutations very much uh, parallel the um, symptoms we see in uh, warm blood fragile foal in horses. Mm-hmm. So what did you conclude in the study and what are you going to look into next? So we concluded that the PLOD1 variant causing the warm blood fragile foal syndrome horses is not a risk factor for catastrophic fracture. And we also concluded that more work is needed to identify what genetic variants may be contributing to the remodeling process and thus contributing to fracture risk. Um, In terms of future work, since the overall population allele frequency was estimated to be at 1.2%, if we assume random mating with approximately 20,000 horses registered annually in the U.S., that should correspond to about four cases of fragile foal syndromes in the thoroughbred. But to date, no case of this condition has been reported in the thoroughbred. And in screening the 700 horses, over 700 horses that we did for our study, we didn't identify any horses that were homozygous. Um, and so one thought is that either the cases that have uh, fragile foal syndrome and thoroughbreds are going unreported or that they are potentially, um, these horses that are homozygous potentially result in earlier late-term embryonic loss. And in support of that late-term embryonic loss hypothesis, there was a recent study done by Arich and colleagues in Germany where they identified 14 cases of warm blood fragile foal syndrome that were homozygous for that PLOD1 allele. Um, and all of these cases were warm blood. So their study showed that homozygosity for pl- PLOD1 resulted in death 
um, either in the later stages of gestation or the foals that survived to term were not viable. So there are no reported cases of fragile foal in a thoroughbred, but given the allele is present in the breed, although it's at a low frequency, um, I have a student here at UC Davis, Lexi Grulios, and I, we are working with Dr. Mandy Demestre in the Equine Pregnancy Laboratory at the Royal Veterinary College to perform studies to determine what role this variant has in embryonic loss and or viability that is specific in the thoroughbred breed. So hopefully lots, to, lots more to come. Lots more to come, we hope, yes. Well, thank you very much for giving us your time today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening and please return for our next podcast in two months. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Journal podcast. More on the subjects discussed can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash EVJ. 